And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down yesterday with Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, hours before she left for the Capitol and the devastating events that would ensue there. We talked about the election results in Georgia and what that will mean for progressive politics in the uh, coming months and years. And we talked about her extraordinary story, really a great American story. Here's that conversation. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, it is so good to see you. Uh, this morning. Welcome to the Axe Files. Welcome to the Institute of Politics in, and I don't want to harm your career here, but in our mutual hometown of Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very proud of my Chicago roots. And, you know, I look forward to us talking more about how that has shaped, uh, you know, all the formidably important things about me as a person and certainly as a lawmaker. So I'm thrilled to be with you. Well, you are a formidable person and you have a great story and I want to get uh, to all of that. But it turns out that we meet on this very auspicious historic day, uh, the day after the Georgia runoffs, in which it now seems apparent that both Democratic candidates won, uh, improbably in some ways, uh, including uh, the Reverend Raphael uh, Warnock, who is the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is hallowed ground in the history, uh, in American social history. It's the pulpit from which Dr. Martin Luther King uh, presided uh, for the years leading up to his to his death. Tell me how you interpret this moment and uh, what your feelings were last night, what they are this morning. Well, I I love that you started with Ebenezer because um, the last time that I was um, at the church was for the homegoing service for Representative John Lewis. And again, it's very surreal to have even, you know, walked the earth at the same time as him, much less to uh, have walked the the corridors of of Congress and and to have been um, mentored both by his example Um, and actively poured into with his wisdom and counsel and his inspiring example. It feels full circle in so many ways. You know, I was listening to Latasha Brown from Black Voters Matter earlier today, and she said that organized power is realized power. You know, so again, it's full circle. It just is another demonstration of the power of organizing. Um, There are groups who have been on the ground for decades that made it possible working alongside Fair Fight and, um, and Stacey Abrams. And I just have to give it up to uh, Nakima Williams uh, from the Georgia State Democratic Party, um, to, to Stacey Abrams, to Mahente, to Black Voters Matter, um, to Georgia Stand Up. You know, the community-based organizations who have been on the front lines in community recognizing that movement building uh, and voter engagement is bigger than one election cycle. And so because of the ground that they have laid, because of their vigilance, um, this victory has been made possible. And we can, uh, you know, what can I say? Georgia is showing off, you know, because (laughs) of them, 
You know, I, I, I for in these uh, last days, I've been saying, Georgia, do what you do. You know, you have do what only you can do. Um, you know, they made the decisive uh, victory of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris possible. Um, and then today, once again, um, allow us to decisively turn the page in this dark chapter in our history with the election of Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Um, and it's so critical, you know, this GOP-led Senate uh, which has been moving, I think, with cruelty and callousness um, and um, carrying the corrupt waters of Donald Trump and this administration. They have been obstructionists at every turn to realizing progress, justice, equity, uh, to a comprehensive relief package to meet the scale and scope of this crisis. And so I am feeling emboldened. I am feeling encouraged. I am feeling hopeful. I'm feeling proud and I am feeling grateful for our organizers. I can't say that enough. You know, <laughs> Reverend Barber uh, said that there's no such thing as blue or red states. There are just states that haven't been organized yet. Yeah. So, well, and we should point out that um, this has been a five year project uh, uh, for, well, I guess less than less than five. But Stacey Abrams has been at it. Uh, her campaign for governor in 2018 was a fulcrum of organ for organization. And she uh, rather than um, rather than uh, retreating after uh, that election, she she stepped on the gas and inspired a whole movement there yeah. uh, uh, of many, many good people on the ground. And it made a difference yesterday. The black turnout uh, clearly was higher than it was in the, as a percentage of the whole than it was in the uh, in the general election and in a very close election uh, that made a difference. I, I want to talk about uh, a, a little bit later about uh, coalition uh, politics and what the what the um, uh, challenges of coalition politics are, as well as the opportunities, because they're obviously uh, are both. Um, but what do you, uh, when you talk about the change now, you are someone who spent 13 years uh, in the United States or working in the United States Senate. It, uh, so, you know, uh, people think of you as an outsider, um, and you certainly have challenged uh, establishment thinking, but you also have a great deal of insight into how that institution works and, and doesn't work. What does it mean uh, that Democrats will be in control of that chamber uh, come, uh, uh, well, as soon as these results are certified in Georgia? Well, you know, David, um, I often say that policy is my love language, and, and that is because... Um, you know, we have seen what I consider policy violence that has resulted in uh, generations of legislated hurt and harm, uh, which has created these entrenched inequities and disparities and racial injustices uh, that we see laid bare by the pandemic uh, and exacerbated. And now, having regained control of the Senate, uh, we have the opportunity to legislate equity to legislate healing, to legislate justice uh, in the same way that we have seen legislated hurt and harm uh, for, for many uh, decades, but certainly in these last four years. I, I want to remind people that um, this GOP-led Senate has approved 200-plus federal far-right-leaning judges, 
they did not bring, despite their verbal bouquets and effusive praise of a freedom writer and civil rights champion, John Lewis, they didn't bring the Voting Rights Act to the floor. Uh, they stood in the way of the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill. They stood in the way of the George Floyd justice and policing bill. Uh, they stood in the way of an infrastructure bill. They stood in the way of a bill to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. They stood in the way um, of a bill to uh, address uh, uh, gun violence prevention. They have been obstructionists at every turn. The only thing that they have expended any real sweat equity or labor on is doing everything they can to delegitimize the decisive election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris because they are in complete, sad, pathetic denial that their president, who I call the occupant, was decisively defeated. So they have spent more time seeking to undermine free and fair elections. And I mean, it's rich because they count, they often characterize themselves, my colleagues across the aisle, as patriots. This is treasonous behavior. This is unpatriotic. Um, you know, this is a, a seminal to our democratic institutions, the peaceful transfer of power. And so I feel emboldened to yeah. legislate boldly in this House, in this Democratic majority-led uh, House, um, and, and expect that our colleagues on the Senate side will then pick up the mantle and do their part. You, um, uh, we, you, you reference, and we should point out that uh, in a few hours you'll be participating in what generally is a uh, a brief procedural exercise which is to accept right. the, accept the report of the electoral college and affirm that uh that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will take office on January 20th as the 46th president of the United States and as vice president um but that that's not going to happen today uh we expect that several of the of your colleagues are going to object uh, and 140 I guess members of the house uh, up to 140 members of the house or thereabouts uh, on the republican side may participate in this 14 or so on the democratic on the uh, republican side in the senate what is the impact of that i mean obviously biden will be president that is clear um this will be a sort of dilatory tactic um, what, but but are there lasting uh, are there lasting impacts of what we're going to see today? Well, again, it's very sad that this is what they want to be their legacy. You know, we have um, today will vote to certify uh, the historic election results in electing Joe Biden and a president and Kamala Harris vice president. And this, as you said, David, is a routine procedural vote, uh, one that has been passed in every presidential election since the late 1800s. And um, instead of honoring that tradition, instead of uh, honoring uh, the history of our democratic institutions, instead they, they, they pursue a pathetic, political stunt, which sets a very dangerous precedent. Yeah, that's what worries our, me. Yeah, it sets a very dangerous precedent for our democracy. You know, the Republicans will stop at nothing to subvert our democracy. And so it is a frightening precedence. Um, however, today, the outcome will not be changed. And 
we will, you know, continue, we'll have work to do. I mean, there's already a deficit of trust in our democratic institutions. And the fact that they would be um, hell-bent on contributing to that, it just flies in the face of reason. And it certainly uh, contributed to their defeat in Georgia yesterday. Yeah, you know, my concern is what you mentioned, which is that every time you destroy a norm, it's very hard to reassemble it. Uh, now you normalize uh, this sort of use of um, this uh, procedural, uh, you know, uh, exercise uh, to raise doubts about an election about which there really aren't doubts. Uh, and, you know, 60 or so courts have ruled on this. Uh, Trump-appointed right. judges, Obama-appointed judges, Clinton-appointed judges, uh, Bush-appointed judges. Everybody uh, has, you know, all these voices have come together and said, no, there's nothing here, but 70% of Republicans believe that the election was fraudulent. And that does do damage to democracies uh, if people don't have faith in the fundamental system of how we select our leaders. So it, it is concerning. You know, you say, I, I did not miss the fact that you said it's up to your colleagues in the Senate now to pick up the the torch. Um, the Senate is a more conservative body uh, than, the, than the House. In fact, um, you know, uh, uh, Senators uh, uh, Kelly and Hickenlooper are very much— um, you know, uh, centrist in their in their politics. Um, you know, even uh, Warnock, Warnock and Ossoff ran for you know the center left uh, Democrats. Uh, you know, you understand the reason I asked you before about your experience in the Senate is you know the Senate. Um, where, where do you? What is what? I, I I can hear your hopes for what can be done. Where are your concerns when you say when you challenge them to pick up the torch? Well, I just think this is not the time to stifle, um, to moderate, um, to play small where we go as a country. You know, before COVID, uh, the percentages of American families who even had $400 saved to weather a disruptive life event, a death in the family, um, a layoff, uh, illness, uh, was was anemic. It was very small. And so there were already so many families living on the precipice. And of course, we have seen marginalized communities of color hardest hit by this pandemic because of the comorbidities of structural racism and unequal access to health care. Um, and so we cannot return to a pre-COVID status quo, unjust normal. The pandemic has really laid bare these inequities. And so, you know, I'm with Reverend Barber. We're in the midst of a national reckoning. And what that demands of us is a, a reconstruction, a third reconstruction, if you will. And so my fear um, is that instead of us being responsive to the mandate decisively delivered by the people, which by the way, by the most marginalized people, if history is written by the winners, then please make sure you get this right. Because there would be no Biden-Harris administration you cannot have Pennsylvania without Philadelphia. You don't have Georgia without Atlanta. You don't have Michigan without Detroit. You do not have Wisconsin without Milwaukee. 
And so uh, my fears are that instead of our being responsive to the most marginalized who mobilized and made it possible for us to turn the page on this dark chapter in our history, um, that we will forget and have selective amnesia. And, and honestly, David, many of these policies, um, which I champion, uh, I don't champion in a vacuum. You know, the reason why there's a national debate on student debt is because of the power of the movement. Um, the reason why there is a, a national, uh, you know, debate around uh, radically reimagining our criminal legal system, around climate justice, around healthcare justice, is a testament uh, to the movement. These are populist ideas. In our early relief packages on the House side, um, and, and at least one of those was bipartisan, there were things included like canceling student debt um, and paid family leave. And previously, these were things that were considered non-starters. But I think given the tsunami of hurt, the unprecedented hurt caused by this pandemic, um, that the electorate is moved. And it is up to us to meet them where they're at and to be responsive to their needs. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you, you talk about the mobilization of the marginalized and how important that was to these victories. But I, I said earlier there, was, there were coalitions that were responsible because you're absolutely right about Milwaukee and Philadelphia and Atlanta, um, you know, in, in each of these, uh, you know, in each of these uh, pivotal states. But uh, it's also true that uh, that suburban areas were uh, significantly responsible for these victories. There was a coalition uh, that made it possible. Some of these, uh, m many of these suburban areas are are are, are less, um, uh, you know, to to use an outdated term, liberal uh, than. Uh, than than the cities. In fact, in the general election, um, you know, in the exit polls, uh, two thirds, uh, I'm sorry, three quarters of Americans uh, describe themselves as either moderate or conservative and about a quarter describe themselves as liberal. That is the reality of the country uh, that we live in. And you work in an environment in which you represent your district and you work with representatives who represent other districts that have shared concerns, but also different uh, concerns. I, I, I was with um, uh, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about this. Um, probably, I don't want to in any way minimize your prodigious talent, because it really is prodigious. But uh, it's probably unlikely that you would have won in Connor Lamb's district or Spanberger's district, or and and it's pretty unlikely that they would have won in yours, uh, at least in a primary. Um, and you know we live in a big diverse country. How do you arrive? How do you achieve progress uh, in in that environment? Um, because the fact is not everybody shares your, your, your views or outlook on every issue. You know, David, I, I first uh, ran for and was elected to uh, public office when I was elected to the Boston City mm -hmm. Council. And I'm the first uh, woman of color that was elected to the city council uh, in its 100-year history. Boston is a very tribal parochial place. Uh, and known for its progressive and liberal bona fides. And yet it took 100 years 
uh, to elect the first uh, woman of color, the first black woman to the Boston City Council, despite the fact um, that we have been leaders in marriage equality and healthcare reform, uh, to name a few. And it's very rare uh, that candidates run and win citywide the first time they run for office, especially if Boston is an adopted home. And so conventional wisdom uh, certainly would have predicted uh, that I would not be successful. And I was because I don't put labels on people. And I ran on an agenda to champion the needs for gender specific and responsive uh, programming to fight for our girls. And people made assumptions about who would care about that. Uh, but I was elected. And so I say all that to say that uh, when you center the people and when you speak to the things that are most important to all people, you are successful. To me, the goal here, bipartisanship is really more of a talking point, David. The goal here is justice. And if we center the people in their most basic needs, access to healthcare, affordable housing, drinkable water, air that is clean, um, you know, the opportunity to build wealth, these are the most basic of needs. And so to me, persuasion is the ultimate tool. You know, impact here. And that, and, and that, and that persuasion comes in the form of, of, of impact, David. So, I mean, what happened yesterday in Georgia was not just, um, it was a decisive mandate delivered by the people. It was in resistance and in affront to, uh, to Donald Trump and to the corruption of Purdue and Leffler. Um, but it was also people saying, we're hurting. And you are standing in the way of us getting what we need. And that means saving lives. Almost 11,000 Georgians' lives have been lost because of this pandemic. A pandemic that has raged out of control because of the willful criminality of Donald Trump. And then unprecedented economic hardship that has been wrought by that pandemic. And so Georgians said, you know, you're standing in the way of $2,000 direct cash reoccurring stimulus payment. You're standing in the way of a robust national strategy to distribute this vaccine. You're standing in the way of robust federal investments. You know, look, we can talk but about that. No, but, 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 let me, but let me let me give you a specific example. And I, and yeah. I spoke with AOC about this. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think she actually raised it. You know, take an issue like fracking and, and the climate. Um, it is, I, I think that... Um, it is manifest that we have a crisis that needs to be dealt with uh, and in an urgent manner because all you have to do is look at what's happening in California and elsewhere uh, to know that. Um, that said, uh, you know, you talk about building wealth. There are people who, who earn their living extracting uh, fossil fuels from the earth. And when they hear these discussions, their thought is, what happens to me? What happens to me? How do we have those discussions so that instead of moralizing about uh, the urgent need to save the planet, which is real, we're also hearing the voices of people who feel like they're going to be collateral damage in that process and that they'll lose their livelihoods and 
uh, and they'll be cast into um, uh, a really uncertain future. How? I mean, and on yeah. most of these issues, there are those kinds of discussions to be had. Yeah. You know, I I was a um, a Rodell Fellow through uh, the Aspen Institute, and uh, this was um, almost a decade ago. And I recall asking a professor, you know, why is it that people are so averse and resistant to change? And his response was that they're not uh, averse or resistant uh, to change; they're averse or resistant to loss. And so, you know, anytime someone has been especially vitriolic in a debate with me, um, my first uh, internal uh, question is, what do they think they're losing? And how can I hold space for that? And so I do think it is about having courageous conversations. And David, if I could add that those conversations and that work needs to happen, not just in an election cycle. Yes. The problem is when uh, we engage in a politic of transaction um, that is uh, shallow, uh, instead of a politics of, of depth uh, and a politics of transformation that comes from actively listening to people and meeting them where they are, meeting them where they are, and then offering responsive solutions. You know, that is the job of government. Yeah. We're, we're to, we are um, to provide solutions to that which ails people. And this is why I've always said that the people closest to the pain should be the closest to the power driving and informing the policymaking. I make it a point to be acutely uncomfortable in proximity to the hurt of people from every walk of life so that I can better understand the nuance, the complexity, the intersectionality of their challenges, but also so that I can glean and develop alongside them the best solutions, uh, the best innovation, the best ideas. So uh, I'm not just uh, leaning on their hardship, I'm leaning on their brilliance too. And conventional wisdom is only conventional wisdom until it isn't anymore. You know, in our congressional run, the polls had us down by 13 points, days out from the election. And we won by decisive 17. I raised and spent $1.6 million. I didn't accept any uh, PAC money. Uh, my opponent, the incumbent, raised and spent $6.6 million. And we won by decisive 17 points because you cannot pull transformation. Uh, you cannot pull the electorate that we were expanding. Um, and people could make assumptions about who that electorate is, David. I, I think because I'm black and a woman that there's an assumption that people just organically then vote for me. Um, and, and that's not true. This is about um, messaging that is uh, that, that mirrors uh, the struggles and the ideas of the people that I represent. It's about intentional strategic choices. Um, and it's about that ongoing engagement and mobilization. I, 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 I understand that and I appreciate that. And I, uh, that was an extraordinary win uh, in 2018. Uh, but you have a very progressive, diverse district. And, you know, the real question is, can can there be uh, a meeting of the minds and uh, between uh, rural districts and urban districts, between suburban districts and yes. urban districts? And, you know, uh, I know there was a big to-do in your caucus uh, about after after the election, because you guys didn't do as well as you had hoped uh, Democrats in the fall about words like socialism and and 
defund police, which were weaponized in uh, in other parts of the country. Socialism means something different in South Florida than it does in 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 you know some some other districts and so on. Defund police, I think, uh, is interpreted uh, differently uh, in some places than other uh, places, and allowing that politics is idiotic at times and allows for the sort of simplification of uh, of issues. It is fair to say, isn't it, that um, the, there has to be some attention paid to those kinds of things. You can't just brush them aside. David, I'm not, you know, I, I ran um, to champion those that are ignored, left out and left behind. And again, because I'm black and a woman and I say that, people make assumptions about who I'm talking about. Um, but uh, again, you know, I'm, I'm here for those uh, that have been ignored, left out and left behind. And I know the speaker has just announced that there'll be an economic disparity select um, committee uh, established. I think that will be an opportunity to uh, speak to those shared challenges, you know, rural, uh, urban, suburban. Um, I am one of the leaders in Congress on issues relative to transportation justice and, and, and infrastructure. You know, those are also opportunities. I don't think anyone uh, wants to be victimized by the greed of pharmaceutical companies um, and, and, and paying, uh, you know, suffering uh, from the greed of, of those companies when you see a drug like insulin that hasn't changed in 100 years and be increased in price by 400%. You know, so... Um, I'm, I'm not interested in leaving anyone behind. So again, ultimately, this is just about actively listening to and then being responsive to the people, to all the people and meeting them where they're at and not, you know, look, David, what happened in the election, uh, that was a very predictable play. You know, Democrats knew Republicans would traffic in misinformation and specifically attack vulnerable Democrats with a law and order message. We have seen that play before. You know, we've seen that before. So, you know, I don't think it's an effective strategy for uh, Democrats to say, I am not that. That is not an effective strategy or message. So I hope that we will do the, the postmortem and the deep analysis. I'm serving on the DCCC transition team, you know, for that reason, so that we are not making top line assumptions um, about uh, what happened in this cycle, but that we are doing the deep dive analysis um, and then uh, reacting accordingly with those strategic investments because it's not about money, David. It's no, not that's about clearly money. not the case because Democrats had a lot of money. I will say that Joe Biden did do exactly what you said. He said, uh, I am not a socialist. I do not believe in defunding police. He, he explicitly said that. Uh, you know, I, I do not uh, support the specific Medicare for all program that would dis, dis, uh, dismantle private insurance. He said those things for a reason and he won. Uh, but David, so. those down ballot, if you look at some of the top lines of early analysis, you know, what people who said that they voted for Joe Biden, but they didn't vote uh, in those down ballot races because they didn't know what Democrats stood for. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that, you know, we, that's I, why we have to continue to do this deep dive analysis uh, the Democrats dominated the 18 to 34 demographic, um, and uh, that was mostly black and brown issue-based um, young people who voted to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But 15% of them did not vote in down-ballot races. So there are opportunities here. 
So this yeah. is about messaging and organizing. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I want to talk to you first about your your folks, how you and how you wound up in Chicago. But tell me about your parents because they each have their own uh, unique story. Sure. Yeah, you know, you don't get to choose your parents, but if I could have, I, I would have chosen these two. Um, so. My uh, mother, Sandy Presley, um, you know, may she rest in peace and power. And uh, my father, uh, Martin Terrell, um, you know, poured into me both by their example and their expectation um, and how they um, educated me. This understanding that I am black and that that is a beautiful thing and it's something to be proud of, but that I was being born into a struggle and that they had an expectation that I would do my part in that struggle. Um, and that also that uh, my mother, you know, who, who raised me um, would make great sacrifices uh, to ensure that I would never be denied or deprived any opportunity um, in life. And that began with um, the great equalizer that is education and ensuring that um, I would have a quality foundation. So- well, let's, uh, you, you, let, let's back up a second because you talk about struggle uh, both your parents uh, understood that struggle very personally. Yes. Your dad spent quite a bit of time in prison. Uh, he, for he was a he had a drug issues and he spent time in prison. And and your mom really raised you for much of your uh, childhood. Tell yes. tell you tell me about yeah. about about well, that. Well, my mother, you know, she told me early on, there's a difference in life between your job and your work. You know, your job is what pays the bills and your work with a capital W is the work of the upliftment and the betterment of community. And my mother role modeled and did both. And she was also a super voter and told me that being a super voter was our superpower. Um, But certainly uh, there were many things that destabilized our household, like my father's substance use disorder. uh, When did that happen? Were you aware of that and oh of course yes i visited him um you know um how old were you when he went to prison throughout his incarceration um he was cycled in and out of the criminal legal system uh, from the time i was a baby um until i was about 15 years old but the thing is is i i want to just correct the record on something my father still played a role in raising me you know while he was incarcerated my father um Although I was often resentful and felt that his, um, he had chosen his addiction over our family. And I didn't always understand that that was a disease. And, and that's why I do so much work now to radically reimagine our criminal legal system. You know, what my father deserved was on-demand, uh, culturally competent treatment, uh, not to be incarcerated um, for a substance use disorder and crimes that he committed to support that disease. Uh, my father went on to attain two advanced degrees while he was yeah. incarcerated then went on to become a professor of journalism and is now a very successful published author. And I'm very proud of him. And so um, I didn't always read the letters he sent me, but I always opened the books he sent me uh, from Langston Hughes to James Baldwin to Lorraine Hansberry. So he really formidably shaped- Why didn't you open open the letters? Because I was young and um, again, insensitive to what his struggles had been. And, um, and, And I was hurting 
And so I didn't always read the letters, but I was a voracious reader. I love to read. And he really did shape my, my black consciousness and thought and my love of language. And then my mother uh, was an incredible role model in terms of the power of activism. My mother was a tenants rights organizer through the Urban League Chicago um, in Cabrini, uh, in Cabrini Green, that was one of her jobs. Um, she was a social worker, she was a community organizer. Um, she, she clerked and, and worked at, uh, um, at law firms. Um, she, you know, at one point she was even a slot attendant on a casino boat. I mean, she, she did anything necessary um, to make sure that I wouldn't be denied a private opportunity for, for you, me. yeah, Ab absolutely. And she so. sent you. She sent you to Francis Parker, which is a very uh, elite uh, private school in Chicago. Those who uh, are from Chicago, and we have many Chicagoans probably listening in on this, uh, know know that. Um, tell me about that experience, and um, uh, and moving from one community. Uh, to another. Where were you guys living at the time? Sure. So uh, for most of my uh, the years while I was at Parker, um, we lived on the near north side um, in a building called Lakeview Towers, uh, 4550 North Clarendon. Um, so, you know, um, close to uptown. And I would get up every morning and take a CTA bus, um, you know, very early in the morning to make my way over to Lincoln Park uh, to attend Francis Parker. And I'm what you call, uh, uh, for my feather, fellow Parker alums, a 14-year uh, ganger. So I, I was there from junior kindergarten, from the age of four, all the way until the age of 18. Um, and, you know, look, I would go home and often be met with eviction notices on our door. You know, I was there on scholarship, and my mother, I think, shortened her life uh, because she worked so hard to ensure that I would have that opportunity, but other opportunities, enrichment opportunities, um, cultural opportunities, uh, traveling opportunities. She wanted me to be well-rounded. Um, she wanted to not only uh, challenge what had been a nagging achievement gap uh, in our communities because of under-resourced and underperforming schools, but she wanted to combat the navigation gap. She wanted to make sure that you know, I could effectively negotiate any room and navigate this world. Yeah, and, well, so, she, and she, she did that very. She did a good job there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but I'm wondering how uh, what your own sense of awareness was uh, that uh, you know hmm. coming from your background and you know going to this school with people from completely uh, different backgrounds. You know, for example, I mean, did you talk about your dad to your classmates? You know, I felt um, that I was in the minority in every way. I was one of few students of color. And um, I felt this tremendous responsibility to represent every black person and to uh, challenge and defy what their stereotypes might be about black people. And so for that reason, I wasn't always forthcoming about um, my home life and our struggles. And I carried a lot of shame um, and secrecy about those things. On the, flip, on the flip side of that, because I was uh, at school with the children of elected officials and judges and, and you know, artists and things like that, it, it really, for me, emboldened, and thanks to my, my mother, uh, mostly, 
a sense of self-agency and determination. I didn't feel like those things were not attainable to me. And then growing up in Chicago, where I, I saw a female mayor in Jane Byrne and a black mayor in Harold Washington. In fact, that was the first campaign I ever worked on was to elect Harold Washington, um, you know, as a little girl. And then um, Representative Jan Schakowsky, who I now serve in Congress with, uh, Jan Schakowsky was a huge influence uh, in my life. She uh, and her, her husband, Bob Creamer, and, um, and his daughter, their daughter, Lauren Creamer, who was one of my closest childhood friends at Parker. Um, and so the experiences at Parker, although I often felt very much in the minority and at times very lonely um, or misunderstood, I also felt a, a great um, accessibility to, to power. So, you know, coming to Boston and there's sort of being this- You went to Boston University. Right. So I came to Boston and, you know, early on there was a lot of sort of people uh, culturally telling me about the limits of what I could do. And uh, that was really, that belied my upbringing and certainly the experience that I had at Parker. I believe that everything was within my reach. Yeah, that's a gift. It is. And it's a gift that, you know, made possible by my mother. She, um, we're originally from Ohio. Um, that's where I was born. And that's where both of my parents were born and raised. And when my, when my mother relocated to Chicago, she asked, you know, what's the best school in the city? And Parker was on that list. And they said, but you'll never get her in. And, um, you know, that only just lit that fire in my mother even more to do everything possible uh, to make sure that I did get in because she needed to know, have that peace of mind that I would be safe while she was, you know, working her fingers to the bone uh, to provide for me and to keep a, shelter, a roof over our heads, you know, while my father, um, you know, was incarcerated and again, you know, managing the other destabilizing factors in our household. We should point out you were a, a student leader there. You went to Boston University and you were a student leader there as well. So um, also a tribute to you and a tribute uh, to her. One of, the, one of the things that you disclosed later in, in life uh, was that you also were the victim of sexual assault, both as a child and uh, of a, a campus rape at, uh, at, at Boston University. Um, tell me um, about the process of going public about that and why sure. that was important uh, to you and how difficult that, that was. Absolutely. Well, before I get into that, I do also want to say, uh, David, um, interestingly enough, when I graduated from Parker, if you look at my yearbook now, they, uh, I was, uh, my, my classmates said that I would be most likely to be the mayor of Chicago. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I recall in my youthful arrogance actually balking at that and not feeling that that was big enough. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> let, let, let me say I've been designated by the city to invite you back if you... <laughs> If you want to fulfill your, uh, your, your, your classmates' aspirations for you. No, you know, but again, I went on to become an aide and, and uh, four years in the House um, and then 11 in the Senate. Um, and so I, I had given up actually on, my, on, on any uh, aspirations of running for office, but um, destiny and, and, uh, and some activists had a different, uh, a different plan for me. Um, I, was, I talked about the, the influence of my mother, my father, of Representative Schakowsky, when she was a state rep at the time of um, seeing people like Jane Byrne and Harold Washington yeah. 
my mother reading me the speeches of Barbara Jordan and Shirley Chisholm as bedtime stories. I mean, it's just, I had an incredible, incredible examples all around me. Um, I was remiss to mention my grandfather. Um, yeah, who was a, 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 a minister, right? Yes, and he's he passed away days after I won my primary for Congress. Um, he lived into his 90s, and he pastored a, a storefront church on the south side of Chicago. And um, that really shaped so much for me, you know, not only my faith, um, but I remember every Sunday listening to people who would give what we call testimony. And they would talk about, you know, the struggles of their life and how good God had been to them. And it, it planted a seed in me in terms of the power of storytelling, uh, the power of testimony. And so it sort of just naturally happened that I began being transparent about uh, my own uh, trials and tribulations, having grown up in the church and seeing people stand up and do that. And just the power of that representation that someone would get up and tell a story about how they were worried about how they'd pay a bill or they were, you know, they worried for a sick a loved one or they feared for the safety for their child. But um, but for the grace of God and uh, that they, they kept working, um, th- that oftentimes what had seemed a an improbable positive outcome had occurred. And that stayed with me. And so... I, I, yeah. Can I can I just interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Uh, I read that you were the victim of sexual abuse for a long long time when you were a child. Did did you were there places you felt you could go uh, to your mom, to your grandfather, to to anyone to get help? Eventually, I did, and you know, so yes, I endured um, you know a near decade of childhood sexual abuse, and then later campus sexual assault. Um, you know, again, I think later recognizing the power of, of, of telling your story, both to take up space for yourself, uh, to, to get on a pathway to your own healing, um, but that you create space for others to get on a pathway to healing and hopefully to realize justice. And I found for me personally, it was always easier for me um, to fight a cause uh, than to do the work of creating my own personal boundaries to stay safe. Um, I was more emboldened in the work of survivor's justice than I had ever had the wherewithal to be uh, in keeping myself safe, you know, just being transparent about that. Um, As a child, yes, I did eventually um, share with my mother what was happening. And, you know, our family is like many families that there was intergenerational trauma, uh, an intergenerational trauma from sexual abuse. My mother was a survivor of sexual abuse and she was also a survivor of rape. And um, so, you know, I, as I was coming into and growing into adulthood, I knew that the work of survivor's justice was going to be something that I did um, because it was a, a, a secret shame uh, that many people, disproportionately women, were carrying when it is not our shame to carry. And as, as challenging as it is for people to consider that someone they love could be violated in such an egregious way, it's even harder for them to consider that someone they love could violate someone in such an egregious way. And, you know, uh, for most uh, survivors, this is not some boogeyman from behind a bush that grabs you while walking down the street. Um, it is someone that you know, perhaps someone even that you love and that you trusted, who, who deeply violates that trust. Um, and so when I, uh, from the Boston City Council Chamber, when introducing a measure to combat campus sexual assault, Um, because one in four survivors of sexual assault are survivors of campus sexual assault specifically. 
um, when I made that decision, it, it again, it wasn't as conscious or as intentional. It was just um, an, an organic evolution in my self-agency, in my determination, and in my finding my voice um, for who I would be as an activist and as a lawmaker. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I've talked about this a lot on this podcast and elsewhere, uh, that my uh, my dad uh, was... Uh, was a died of suicide. And, um, I talk about it. It took me 30 years to talk publicly about it. Um, because I felt ashamed or I felt somehow he would be ashamed. And I realized that's exactly why he didn't get help because he felt somehow it was a blight on his character to have, uh, to, to have mental illness. Um, and, uh, I found that when I talked about it, it was useful to people who were going through that or who had someone they loved who were going through those problems. Uh, did you find by speaking out that you helped embolden others who, uh, who maybe weren't, didn't feel like they could share their stories? Yes. And David, thank you for that, which you did. Um, yes. Uh, and I'm sure you have similar experiences where, uh, there were periods that stretched there early in my uh, transparency, if you will, where I could not go to a reception or enter a restroom or, or walk a hallway alone without someone pulling me aside and say, thank you for telling you your story. You know, the, the, the characters and, and the, uh, the abusers might have changed, um, but the trauma was, was the same. And many people would come up to me and share their experience. And David, you asked me uh, as a child, did I feel there was anyone that I could trust? I do want to say this. Um, I never confided in any adult outside of my mother. And again, that was much uh, years later. But there was a school nurse who saw in me, and, I, and I'm grateful for this, so many children act out when they're experiencing trauma. Um, I was not one of those children. I was a child who shut down. And even though I had tested gifted, that was often not showing up and quantified in my grades. Um, even though I was a student leader, I was a class president and student government president and a competitive debater uh, through a, a program called Junior Statesman of America. You know, I found a way, like many uh, children experiencing trauma or adults, to compartmentalize my life. But, you know, this nurse really saw that there was something going on in me. Um, and so I'm, this is why today I fight for those investments in social emotional wellness supports um, so that you have a trauma-informed learning community where instead of someone asking what's wrong with you, we'll ask what happened to you. Um, and uh, it's, that's why I continue to do that experience is, has directly shaped the policies that I author um, and the, the issues that I champion and the communities and the people that I fight for and my acknowledgement that trauma is a barrier to learning. Yeah, you know, um, you you were really, really uh, successful uh, and active as a member of the city council, uh, as a leader of the city council in Boston. And I'm wondering, you mentioned Harold Washington. He's an old client of mine, uh, really a transcendent figure in Chicago history. Um, but I, 
you know, he he ended up loving being mayor far more than he did being in Congress. Uh, because when you are at the local level, you, you can sort of see and touch the things that you do in a very visceral way. Tell me about the difference between being a member of the city council and local government, where sometimes you can get things done in a much more expeditious and direct way than being a member of Congress. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because um, whenever I think of Harold Washington, I just think of that, that smile of his yeah. you know, that just came from the deepest places. And when you talk about coalition, you know, he is a role model of mine and such an inspiring example of what true coalition building looks like. Um, and I remember being des- just um, completely devastated. Yeah, um, when he died. When, yeah. Yes, when he died. Um, you know, I thought long and hard, and this is what I say to young people all the time, because, or anyone that asks me, um, that's considering running for office is, you know, really think long and hard about the impact you seek to have. And then that will inform what office you pursue, if any at all. Because I, I never want people to underestimate the power of being the person behind the person. I found great meaning, reward, and purpose in that. Um, but I love building consensus. And I love being a part of a legislative body. And, and I knew for me that that was the route. I can certainly appreciate the power of being an executive and being able to exact change through the stroke of a pen. But uh, you know, the power of the pen is the, of a lawmaker um, is very transformative. And the issues that I seek to uh, address and the harm that I want to reverse, they were all legislated. You know, we have systemic problems and they demand systemic solutions. And that requires lawmaking. You know, when I worked in the office, David, you know, I started as an unpaid intern working three paid jobs in the Roxbury Satellite Office of Congressman Joseph P. Kennedy II. And today, you know, paying my interns a living wage, I'm now the congresswoman uh, for that seat that I began as an unpaid intern, you know, some 20 plus uh, years ago. But I remember sitting in that front desk and people coming, crossing that threshold, and it really just highlighted for me the power of policy, because people were coming into that office um, dealing with, uh, you know, uh, foreclosure crises, um, and I was seeing the impact of of racial inequities because of practices like redlining, an issue that Congressman um, Joseph P. Kennedy II really led on, and so that's what really for me made it clear that I wanted to be a lawmaker and I wanted to be a part of a legislative body. You would talk about publicly sharing experiences. You shared this experience of alopecia, which is a, uh, a condition that causes hair loss. And um, you, uh, you uh, appeared in public uh, uh, w- without your hair. Um, and it, it you know, this being the society in which we live, that got quite a bit of attention as you knew it would. Um, Just a a minute on that process, being a public figure and taking a step like that. David, I actually didn't know that it would garner any attention. Uh, You know, if my staff were on this call, they would tell you that um, when I made the decision to do the reveal, which was really just about my wanting to authentically you know, be able to be an authentic leader. And I felt it was, it was critical that I be transparent. 
certainly I was aware of the 7 million Americans that are living with alopecia, disproportionately uh, women of color uh, and others suffering from traumatic hair loss from other autoimmune diseases or cancer treatment. But I never could have anticipated the response. I actually said to my team when we were going live, what if no one even cares? <laughs> so um, I was completely um, humbled by the global response. And again, I made the decision to do it because I think I'm here not only to occupy space, but to create it. Um, and when I, as you may recall, if you saw the video, I went completely bald on the eve of impeachment. And so I had mere hours to figure out how I was going to move. And again, you know, when you're a woman and when you are a black woman and you are in politics, everything is political. Yeah. I talked this out with my team. We thought about, can I just go to the House floor bald for the first time and vote in the affirmative on articles of impeachment? We thought people would think it was some sort of statement. Um, I mean, these are the sorts of things that I'm constantly having to navigate uh, just in, in showing up as myself. And so I made the decision that uh, I would wear a wig the next day. Um, only Representative Omar uh, is able to wear a head covering, and that is for religious reasons. But you are not allowed to wear hats on the House floor. You cannot wear a scarf or a head covering. Uh, there, there's one exception, and that is Representative Omar. And so we did at 5 o'clock in the morning. I went to a stylist. They customized a wig for me. And then I went to uh, give a floor statement uh, during one of the most visible moments uh, in the history of the house. And uh, after that, I ran to the bathroom and hid. Uh, I felt very uncomfortable in that wig. I did not feel like my authentic self. Um, I felt great shame. And I knew in that moment that I was going to reveal um, my alopecia totalis diagnosis and what I was living with. And, and again, was completely humbled by what that visibility and what that representation would mean to so many. Yeah, this is another uh, case where sharing your story probably gave great heart to others who are, who, who are struggling. I have to ask you um, uh, about your husband, Conan Harris, um, because he too has this very uh, admirable story of redemption, uh, personal redemption, spent uh, also, I guess, 10 years in prison. Is that right? Yes, yes. He was he cycled in and out of the criminal legal system uh, from a juvenile, or really from the age of 11, um, and then was uh, incarcerated for um, a decade. And, and like my father, attained a degree while he was incarcerated, came out, immediately began doing youth development and empowerment work, then went on to work for um, one of the most formidable foundations in Boston, the Boston Foundation, uh, running a program focused on gang uh, mitigation, uh, or rather mediation, um, and violence prevention and intervention work. And then he went on to, to serve the mayor of Boston, uh, Marty Walsh, uh, serving in his cabinet um, as a, um, a deputy uh, director for public safety. Uh, and now he owns his own business. And so I'm telling you, uh, he has been an answered prayer and the fact that I'm married to a black man who, who was incarcerated and that my father is a black man who was incarcerated really does, I think, highlight the fact that, you know, for um, the black community, I'm certainly not an anomaly. Uh, and that does speak to uh, generations of, of hurt and, and destabilization that has been disproportionately bore by black Americans because of mass incarceration. And certainly being married to Conan and 
and uh, having a father uh, like uh, my own, that has also shaped my worldview and directly informed the policies that I champion and the bills that I write. And I'm very, and I do want you to know, David, um, since uh, people uh, often don't get this, um, that uh, because you just become a digestible soundbite uh, to the public, but I'm a very serious policymaker. And in fact, I introduced more bills than any other freshman member in the 116th, 55 bills. Um, and so uh, many of those are in the space of yes. our criminal uh, legal system uh, transformation. And that has been directly shaped and informed by my lived experiences and those who I am in proximity to. You know, when we were elected to Congress, David, some 250 uh, incarcerated black men organized behind the wall at MCI Norfolk uh, to get their families to the polls on election day uh, to ensure that they that they cast a ballot because they know my commitment to them and that I am just as committed to them and see them as my constituents and that I have a responsibility to them as well. And because of my father and my husband, I know how much intelligentsia and brilliance is dying on the vine uh, because of unjust uh, sentencing. We have to go, but I, I, on the way out, um, just tell me what the election yesterday means to those goals of yours, and what do you think is achievable in terms of uh, uh, reform uh, in the next couple of years with the Senate and the House and a, and, de and a Democratic president? Well, I've been in active conversation with the Biden administration uh, during this transition about you know, everything from uh, cabinet level appointments to policy priorities. Uh, I expect to continue that, uh, you know, once they are formally sworn in. And so, you know, top of mind for me, I'm going to refile my, my bill to abolish the federal death penalty. I'll be refiling my legislation to uh, cancel a student debt. Um, and I will also be uh, refiling my people's justice guarantee, which is a radical reimagining of our criminal criminal legal system, which includes everything from stopping the militarization of our police um, to investing in social emotional wellness supports instead of school police, um, to ending qualified immunity, uh, to repealing the 1994 crime bill. So, you know, I will keep my foot on the gas, um, not the brake, uh, and continue to advance bold progressive policies and meet the moment um, and that center the people in all things. And if I didn't do that, it would be a betrayal to the house that I was raised in and what was poured into me. Ayanna Presley, it's really good to be with you. Thank you so much uh, for, for your time. And we look forward to uh, seeing uh, what you do in the future. Thank you, David. Thank you for the opportunity. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.